I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A, where you all ask the questions and we answer. I am joined by my fearless co-host, Kristen Williams. Love it. I just, <laughs> I get so excited for your intro every time. Like, what's she going to say? What's I know I got to come up with some really, yeah, I feel like doing a backflip or something. So excited to be here with you. All right, here we go. Launching right in. Ayla Michaela, it looks like it is. She asks, my hubby has chronic pain on the top of his big toe joint when walking. What could it be? Dun, dun, dun. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, so the big toe, it's a very common, I'm guessing she's probably talking about the metatarsal head that the, if you want to think of the ball of the big toe, um, very common place to get several things. Now, because it's chronic, you know, that's a common place to get what's called gout, which is an inflammatory arthritis that tends to be more acute in nature that can come and go. But those are pretty hot, you know, one week long episodes of severe, like crippling pain. What you're describing sounds a bit more like just a couple of things. You could be like the uh, hallux rigidus, which is when you start to get an arthritic change in the hallux, which is the fancy name for your big toe. It can be on top of it, it can be surrounding, but I'm guessing that's probably what he has super common. So what can he do about it? I mean, some of the things that I've always done with that type of uh, arthritic change, I feel like we say this a lot, right? Create space. So you can gap that joint, do a little joint mobilizations. You can wear toe spreaders. Laura, I know you can speak more to this. Create better mechanics around the joint. So take a look at the ankle mobile, you know, ankle range of motion. You know, is there something that he is doing within his gait pattern that's causing more strain? There may not be anything. Some people, there is a genetic component to this. Some people just get it. You're going to get it no matter how perfectly balanced you are in your body. It's just in your deck of cards, if you will. But what can you do after that? 
do some joint mobilization, some good stretching and better shoe wear. So you give a nice big toe box. You're not compressing on it. And I know you can speak to this, Laura, because I know you've struggled with this yourself in at, at times, correct? Yeah, yeah. Actually, my right big toe, my left one's fine. My right one is definitely fighting me on the hallux uh, rigidus. It's really getting... It's great most of the time, but if I don't do some of the things that you said, like I just, or if I were just to neglect it and, and I know so much, so I'm right on top of it. But yeah, what happens is I get the same thing. And sometimes I'll get it from something I eat, literally. Like the next day, I know I've eaten either too much like processed foods, whether it's sugar or salt, because I get an ache in my big toe. That's the only place I'll get it. And I'm like, what did I eat yesterday? Because what is that? That's an inflammatory response that your body has from what you put in your body. That's it's really true. And some people are, you know, genetically predisposed. They'll never like they could eat garbage and maybe they'd never feel it. But at some point, you probably will. Like it didn't bother me. I never was. I don't think I was impacted in the same way now. And again, it's not painful. It's just achy. And so I know. So that's the one one thing I look at. Look at your really get into an anti-inflammatory diet. Because if you have an area of your body that does tend to get more inflamed, and that's basically hallux rigidus, that big toe gets rigid, it gets more inflamed, and it can become uh, more like a bunion. So first of all, look at what you're eating, eating, fueling, all that. That's one thing. Uh, The second thing is, like Kristen said, give it space. I'm a huge fan of toe spacers, uh, so much so that I got them on our shopping site. On our, so if you go to lityoga.com, look up Correct Toes. We have them on there. They are amazing. They're $65, which is you could buy $15 ones, but I'm going to tell you the $15 ones aren't going to last like these are. These are made by a doctor. They're silicone. I've had mine for, I think, seven years. And what I do is I'm not great about it. Like I wait until I get that little, little ache coming. I'm like, oops, haven't worn my toe spacers in a while. I'll wear them for literally 15 to 30 minutes and it's like the ache goes away. I can't even describe it. I've given the joint space. I also do what Kristen said. I massage it. I'll actually pull my big toe straight out just to align it and just give it a massage, give it some traction, massage it. Look at what your husband's wearing on his feet. Like Kristen said, big toe box. That means not these narrow little sneakers, narrow shoes. He's got to get space in there. So he's got to open up what he's wearing, and then putting the toe spacers on. And then like she said, look at the range of motion. If he's decreased dorsiflexion, he's probably overworking the big toe. And it has now decided it doesn't like that. They need to work in collaboration. So when he's walking, he needs to push off, but he needs to land and and be able to have you know the, the heel. In other words, dorsiflexion is where your foot is on the ground, your heel remains on the ground, even as you start to move forward in space. Or think of it like this, when you're squatting, bending both knees, your heel stays down as you hinge at the hips, it doesn't pop up. So you need to have that range of motion there. And then you need to have um, good, adequate plantar flexion, which would be the push-off from the ankle as well as that big toe. So if it's really bothering him, we always recommend having him go to somebody to say all these things in person and really show him what to do. But uh, we also have things on our website, on our Lit Daily, that deal with these things. So take a look at some of our ther- therapeutic series and 
I can't think of any of the names right off the bat, but there's some toe stuff, some heel stuff, plantar fascia stuff, all of it. You want to get it now when it's in the aching part before it becomes... Because what happens is when there's stress to a joint, your body responds by like summoning more connective tissue to come in, whether it's in the form of bone or cartilage. And that's when you get the bunion. That's when you get that really, it becomes really rigid because it becomes more extra osteophytic type bone in there. You want to get it before it gets really rigid because then you need that big toe. It is absolutely fundamental for your movement. So keep it mobile. Good question. All right. Great question. So many people struggle with this. And I think uh, without a doubt, if you compared people who wear shoes most of their lives to people who've never worn shoes, I doubt they have this issue at all. It really comes down to a lot of that. We've immobilized, we've weakened, compensated. And then um, that particular joint, like Kristen said, whether it's gout or arthritis, does tend to be, it's like almost your thumb. You have a similar type joint in your thumb that is more arthritic, more inclined to have arthritis. Okay, next question. How to, this is from Maya Yoga Terra Happy. <laughs> How to work from a forearm balance with hands interlaced to one with forearms parallel? I think that really a lot of times boils down to shoulder mobility. You know, when you think about when your hands are interlaced, you're bringing your glenohumeral joint, which is where the the arm bone comes into the socket, which we call the glenoid part of your scapula. And it's it's a bit more internally rotated. To get those forearms parallel, you're not only flexed in the shoulder joint, but you're externally rotated to a pretty high degree. Uh, so working on flexibility there. And it doesn't, you know, some people, you're not only are you winding up the rotator cuff, but you're winding up your lats even more. So I don't think personally forearm parallel golfin slash forearm balance is available to every body type. You know, you really do have to have extraordinary range of motion. And uh, it doesn't mean you need to be hypermobile at all or hyper flexible. I guess my point is just be mindful of whether or not it's available to you immediately or is it something you need to work towards? Because I do think you can work towards it and improve your, your shoulder range of motion, your lat mobility, your shoulder your rotator cuff strength and mobility and get there, but just be patient with it and don't push it because I that can be pinchy for some people if they're not really dialed in to what's happening at the scapula, at the glenohumeral joint, you know, even at the scap, uh, the, the collarbones, you know, that it's it's such a arm balance is one of those sneaky, challenging poses, forearm balance, excuse me. Um, because it takes a lot of our cheater mechanisms of wrists and elbows out of it. And I'm the, like waving my hand, like me, me, me. Forearm balance is hard for me because of just some deficits that I have, weaknesses, et cetera. So that's my thought on it. Laura, you, what, I'm sure you agree and have some other stuff to add. Absolutely. I mean, like Kristen said, predominantly it's a range of motion issue to begin with. But if you think about gaining range of motion, when you gain range of motion, you don't have strength or good strength in that new range of motion either. So it's a real like step ladder because you will, all of a sudden you'll get more range of motion, but you can't handle the load, the demand 
it's it's not so much when the legs are up, it's the transitioning. That's when people start to go, the hands just go fall in. It's that transition where the load is not as easy when it's straight up in the air. Um, so it is a common, that is one of those major combinations of you need really good range of motion and then you need really good strength in that range of motion. And that strength is going to be dependent on all the things she listed, the scapula, the scapula muscles, the rotator cuff muscles, the lats not like not being too restricted, but not being overly active, like trying to hold you completely because they've got to rely on the underlying muscles as well. What's happening in the thoracic spine? Are you letting that thoracic spine go, uh, meaning you're kind of dripping the ribs down? And then the scapula is searching for your rib cage, your shoulders are going to be more likely to internally rotate with that action as well. So it's a lot going on. There's a couple of things I tell people to do is one practice where you're not inverted, just standing and do the exact same action with your arms overhead. Feel how freaking hard that is. Like just bring your arms straight up in the air, turn your palms up like you're holding a tray and then bend the elbows and try and hold that without pushing your ribs. It is hard. Of course, it's a different demand. Your triceps are working differently with gravity directly on them, but it gives you the idea of the position that you have to hold and then add load to it. So do it in non-weight-bearing positions to get really that brain map of, am I able to hold my elbows parallel then do it on your back where you're lying down, your knees are bent as if you're going to go up in a bridge and just try it there. Because what you're doing is getting feedback from the ground. Can I keep my scapula on the floor and my sacrum? As I bring my arm in a lot of shoulder flexion, if that, those ribs start creeping up, that's indicative again, you're either too restricted in the latissimus or that's just your brain mapping and it doesn't know how to release and remember, the lats have some fascial connection to the triceps. So they're also giving a big stretch across that elbow. It's, there's a lot going on. So I would do things that are not necessarily in dolphin, but reproduce the requirements in dolphin. And then um, in dolphin and forearm balance, and then start working maybe with a block between your hands. That's a really nice one for people where their hands can't Drop, you know, roll in, and you start to see, like in dolphin, doing little hops. What does that feel like? Can you meet the demand of that? The block is literally blocking your hands from going in, but are your elbows then trying to creep out anyway? You need to break it down into all the the parts, and then know that the sum of the parts is much greater <laughs> than that. So, but keep at it. You know, these can this can take a while. And there's lots of people who still interlace their fingers and come up into forearm balance and they're fine. I just find that would be terrifying for me personally because I don't I love having my my digits on the ground where I can control stuff, but I think people adjust to it and feel much safer that way. So don't feel like you ever have to have your hands down if that is not in your biomechanical range, but know that you could work on it, but you have to really really be consistent and not let any of those parts kind of a default, especially like the thoracic spine or the internal rotation of the shoulders. There is a lot to be said. We love our dolphin and forearm balance. All right, last question here. Miriam Tabriaz, are front splits safe for the body? Well, I'll launch right in and I know you're going to have a lot more to say. Okay, I would say any, like, here's the answer. It, your body, if your body is capable of doing it, it's probably okay to do. 
That being said, people that are in their mid-20s, mid-30s, mid-40s who haven't been practicing front splits like a like Kristen's daughter, so I'll let her speak to that, or something like that, they're in their effort to do it, quote, quote, in our, you know, like we have to accomplish this thing, we're going to compensate. And usually what we'll do is we'll tip in the pelvis, roll our femurs out, and maybe shorten our back. So it becomes a, an asymmetrical load on your pelvis, on your sacrum, on your hamstring. I mean, there are similar to what we were just talking about in forearm balance. If you like break down the components of what is needed for a safe front split, it's a lot. Neutral pelvis, really open but strong hamstrings because you don't want to take a hamstring at its total range of motion and then you know push it down toward the floor. Lengthen spine, active core. Can you do all of that? Most people cannot. So in the endeavor to do a front split, they will injure themselves. Uh, this is a cost-benefit thing. The cost is great if you injure yourself. You strain or, or sprain your hamstring, your low back, your sacrum. And then what are the gains? Personally, I'm going to just say it. I think it's the ego thing. Why else would we do a front split? I mean, there's really no logic in doing it. There's absolutely none. There's no functional carryover. Uh, there's no reason to do it. Um, like if you did it in the woods and no one saw it, would it really matter? Like that kind of thing. Like really, does it, you know? So I think we attach value to things because we somehow think that when we get those things, we're going to feel better. But let me tell you, you're not going to, like getting a split, uh, the people that get splits are naturally mobile or have been doing it for years, like Kristen's kids who have been in, in cheer and gymnastics, and they can get it naturally. And they're not going to be like, you know, ecstatic about it because it, it comes naturally to them. Hypermobile people get it naturally. They probably shouldn't be doing it because they're only making their ligaments more lax. So my big answer is why? I always ask, why do you want to do something? I've had people who've strained themselves getting into incredibly extensive hamstring flexible things, strain their hamstrings, and then ask me when, when I thought they could go back to doing it. And as I look at them with like, in my mind, I'm going, what the F are you talking about? I'm thinking, so that's my first question. Like, why? Why do you want to go back to doing something that injured you? Why do you want to do something that to me doesn't have any value? I mean, like, I'm a handstand doing my split up there, great. But splits on the floor, that's my big opinion. And I tend to have a big mouth about it. So Kristen, take it away. I absolutely hold your <laughs> opinion on that. Uh, splits are the byproduct of Instagram and Facebook. You know? I mean, I can't imagine before I got into yoga, any reason I would think to myself, and I used to be able to do the splits on just one leg, my right leg, because I was in gymnastics as a kid, but I'm not naturally flexible. We all know this. But if I look at my my two girls, my daughter, the oldest, she got into splits like she's naturally flexible. She's like, bloop, plopped right down in them. The one who's actually the competitive, you know, high level cheerleader had to work her way into them. But she did it when she was nine, and that's when you can naturally get gain flexibility. And she did it for a sport. She's a flyer. She that's part of her. Want to call it a job. But when you're looking at front splits, I mean, we think about the hamstring, it's huge. That back leg, the amount of hip extension that's needed, nobody has that. Nobody has 90 degrees of hip extension. You are taking that into your low back. And so to your point, 
what's the cost? The cost of straining a hamstring is years sometimes of recovery. Years. (laughs) The cost of spondylolisthesis, which can be a PARS fracture. So basically this vertebra slip forward because you fracture your back. Years, a lifetime of dysfunction, really, I mean, disabling injury from that. For what? There is no function to a split. It's truly, it's a picture op. It's a photo op. It looks pretty. That's it. So unless you're a gymnast, unless you're a dancer, it's part of your job. I don't see any benefit to it. And I would... Now, every, every now and then I'll offer it up in a class because I know there are people in that class who are, they can go, boop, no problem down into it. And I know it serves their ego. If you want to go into splits, I'm like, I'm not going there. But if they're in your practice, you can put them in there. That is like once a year. And that number is decreasing every year I age because I kind of realize what's the point? You know, there really is, is no point to it. So I would highly encourage people not to work towards those because it truly, if it's just for a photo opportunity, you are really putting yourself at high risk of serious injury in the back and the hamstrings for no gain other than a photo op that you're going to look at 10 years from now and be like, man, I wish I looked that good now. Cause you know, we all look back and like, it only makes you feel bad 10 years from now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, we have, unfortunately, we have friends, clients who wish they had never done this, who have the spondylolisthesis, who have low back issues, who have disc issues. And it is just not something that is, you know, our bodies are strong, but they, you're putting them at the breaking point, essentially. You're basically like, let's see how much you can handle. (laughs) I mean, and it's like, it's just not fair to do to that connective tissue, that demand. And, you know, this is the final thing I'll say. Working on hamstring flexibility, in my opinion, should always be done in weight-bearing, almost always, 99% of the time. Meaning, if you are putting that, sliding that front leg out in a split, you're not weight-bearing. And weight-bearing is protective because you're getting a lot of this mechanical energy back up through the joints that inspires the muscles to have some tone to them, um, the connective tissue to not just be, you know, everything is in a more protective mode. It has more of a responsiveness. And so we work a lot in like, what we now, I should call standing L because when you say standing split to the non-lit yoga person, they're going to try and get that leg imitating what they would do on the ground. And what we really want is like an L shape, but you get the hip right over the ankle, weight-bearing, and that other leg at 90 degrees, you are getting a great hamstring stretch in a functional way. I'm not putting it in that excessive demand. Like Kristen was saying, we're not asking that other non-weight-bearing leg to be in major hip extension like you would in a seating split. It's so much more functional. So work on your hamstrings in weight-bearing primarily because you're going to get you're going to get so much more bang for your buck and you're going to be working for your body versus against it. So there you go. You ask the PTs, we're going to be honest with you. Why do you want to... And that's the the first question I would ask everyone. Why? Why do you want to do some of these crazy poses? Standing... Handstand is not a crazy pose, in my opinion. A seated front split is crazy to try and do because it's just putting way too much demand on these muscles and connective tissues without giving them really a fair shot at um, supporting you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, you ask. That's the thing. Don't be afraid to ask. We'll give you our opinions. And then you can take them or leave them, right? We're also not attached to it. We just want to, we want to give you the best information, the healthiest information. And we're also cheering for you all the way. So thank you, KB. And as always, we are pulling for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.